got half of it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 142, and we're going to be looking at a couple things in there in just a moment. Uh, I, I became a Christian almost 14 years ago, and I was baptized on a Thursday, April 3rd. And I had never visited the church building before that I was baptized in. And so I didn't really know anybody from the church. But uh, my first job was working at a gun club. And I would work Sunday mornings and uh, I was coming straight from a gun club. And you don't really dress up to work at a gun club and all this sort of thing. So my, I went to services that Sunday night. And I remember feeling really weirded out. Because there were people that were congratulating me, saying that they were so happy that uh, I was baptized and I, that was really nice and everything. But the weirdest thing that happened was somebody said, hey, would you want to come over for lunch or dinner sometime and we can get to know you? And I grew up in a family that was very skeptical of people. I was a northerner and we were also extra skeptical of people. We had been burned by contractors before for things that we wanted done in our house that were actually con men, things like that. And so... We were just very skeptical of people. So when somebody said, hey, could you have dinner or lunch with us sometime? My first thought was, you're weird. Why would I want to do that? (laughs) But what I said to them was, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And uh, that was my first time being around Christians. I before I had started spending time with Christians, uh, I never really had a, a real sense of community of belonging it was something that i knew that i needed and now that i've been a christian for almost 14 years uh, christians are by far the best people i've ever known we're so blessed to have one another and it's something that a lot of people in the world don't comprehend or understand how we can know people in so many different places since sunday night we've been talking about in my series of lessons on how I've tried to figure out how to reason with people who are skeptics and atheists. And on the Sunday night lesson, we we talked about how skeptics have emotional reasons for their unbelief. Uh, It's not like the skeptic, like is oftentimes thought of in our society, that the skeptic has reached uh, totally objective thinking, and that's why they have become skeptics, because they've got the facts and the data and everything like that. That's not the case. Uh, that when you actually peel back some of the layers of what appears to be objectivity, you find that people have a desire to sin and they want to try to justify it. You find that other people have been sincerely burned by religious people, and that's a difficult obstacle to hurdle. And those are real hurts, but it's still an emotional reaction. It's not that you've figured out that the Bible's not reliable or true. You have emotionally reacted from an experience, and that's what started your unbelief. And so what I'm trying to do when I study with skeptics is I, I'm trying to show them how uh, Christianity makes better sense of the needs that you have. Our need for things like meaning, our, uh, our need to have some basis for morality, our need for identity like we talked about last night, our need for hope. That God understands our psychology better than anything else that you could find, which could lead somebody to understand that maybe there's a God that designed me. And understands my deepest needs. And when you show that the things that you know you need can be met in God. uh, 
that maybe that'll remove some of the emotional barriers that they have to believe. And so we've been looking at, at different needs in this series. In this lesson, I want to talk about our need for community. This has been one of the biggest blessings that I've experienced since becoming a Christian, and there are so many blessings. But our need for community. As we've been doing in some of these other lessons, I want to begin by talking about how if you don't have God and you're trying to find fulfillment with the secular worldview, what would a secular person do in order to try to find a sense of community? And by the way, whenever I study with skeptics, one of the things that they are very quick to say is that they'll say, you know, we feel like we're we're happy in our worldview to some extent. But one thing that we're not happy with is we we will never be able to replicate the community that Christians have. That This is what skeptics have told me repeatedly. And so I just want to begin uh, by pointing out a, a couple Whenever I study with them, I'm trying to quote like secular people to try to help them to reason with them. <clears throat> One of the things that I would like to show is how secular people have acknowledged that we do have this need for community. Abraham Maslow, he was the guy that did that pyramid thing, Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever. He said this, if both the psychological and the safety needs are fairly well gratified, then there will emerge the love and affection and belongingness needs. Now the person will feel keenly as never before the absence of friends or a sweetheart or a wife or children. He will hunger for affectionate relations with people in general, namely for his place in his group, and he will strive with great intensity to achieve that goal. Now, uh, you could argue that like if some of the more basic needs about like food and clothing and shelter, sometimes it's your community that helps you get those things. But here he's talking about if you've got a lot of your base needs met, what you're going to hunger for and even forget that you were ever hungry or needed shelter is what you're going to want is this sense of community. Now, notice the words that he uses to describe it. He uses the words love, affection, belongingness. Can you be in a community of people who don't love you and still feel lonely? Look at Psalm 142. In Psalm 142, look at the heading of Psalm 142 where it says, A masculine of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. Now, uh, do you remember when David went to the cave and there were 400 people that came up to him? Some people call those people the 3D army. <laughs> I like to call it the DDD army. But so are, are these, have these people arrived at the cave at this point? I don't know if they've arrived at the point that David writes this. But I want you to just imagine for a moment that they have arrived when he writes this psalm. Look at Psalm 142 verses 1 through 4. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Can you imagine a better psalm on loneliness than that? Possibly written while David is surrounded by 400 people. When we talk about needing a sense of community, we're not talking about just being around people. We're talking about, like he says in verse 4, wanting to feel like you've been cared for. And this is some of the stuff that uh, Abraham Maslow talks about. Love, belonging, that sort of thing. Now, notice another one, another cultural example of uh, helping us see our need for identity. There's a guy named Robert Waldinger. 
And he did a TED Talk. And when you do a TED Talk, you have to talk differently. Uh, he wrote, he, he said this in his TED Talk. The Harvard study of adult development may have been the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. For 75 years, we've tracked the lives of 724 men. We've learned that social connections are really good for us and that loneliness kills. It turns out that people who are more socially connected live longer than people who are less well-connected. People who are more isolated are less happy. Their health declines in earlier midlife. Their brain functioning declines sooner, and they live shorter lives than people who are not lonely. All right, so this really long study has shown us, like what God said at the beginning of the Bible, that it's not good for man to be alone. He gives Adam his wife, but still the general principle of needing to be in some sort of community with people, to have this sense of belonging. All right, how would a skeptic, how would somebody in the secular worldview, you take God out of the picture, how would they find some kind of sense of community or belonging or affection or love? Well, I think oftentimes what happens is people try to have some kind of shared interest and they try to group up around whatever that shared interest might be. There's different associations that you can join, like the American Humanist Humanist Association is something that's grown in more popularity in the last 15 years where people actually get together in the name of something that's not God. Uh, and they like read poems from atheists and they'll, somebody will actually give some sort of a sermon. Uh, and they get together and they talk about these sort of things together. Uh, there's, there's internet things that you can join, like the meetup website where you can find something that you're interested in, like hiking or kayaking or certain kinds of foods or movies. And you can join whatever times people will do these activities together. And then you can go try to meet people that have those same kinds of interests. I think, generally speaking, the secular approach to community is to find people who have shared interests and spend time with them. All right, that's sort of like what we do too, though, right? But if you leave God out of the picture, what are the weaknesses with this, with trying to do this? I'm going to suggest that there are several weaknesses to this that uh, we could discuss. Number one is that if you're trying to share in transient things, it's always going to lack eternal depth. Uh, if you're trying to group up and, and, and find friendships and relationships that are based in things that are perishing and things that could even change three years from now, how do you ever have the kind of depth that a Christian could have in sense of community? There's a couple weeks ago where I had done a gospel meeting in Annapolis, Maryland, and I was out of town uh, the week that I followed the Philadelphia Eagles NFL where the Philadelphia Eagles had come to Atlanta where I live to beat the Falcons, and they did. But I was out of town, so I couldn't go to the game. That's happened two times now since I've been in Atlanta. And so I flew back on Monday to Atlanta, and in the airport there were a bunch of Philadelphia Eagles fans that were flying back to Philadelphia. And there were several of they had their hats or their masks that had the Eagles logo or the, the whatever, all that kind of stuff. And some of them I yelled out, go Eagles. And they said, yeah, you're an Eagles fan too. And I said, yes, can I share my sins with you? <laughs> that didn't happen, by the way. 
if I'm trying to group up around transient things, do, do you you feel that there's never a kind of depth? Because what if people get frustrated with the NFL a couple years from now? If they there's things that they do that people don't like or whatever, it's like these interests: college, education, uh, your favorite sports, cars, whatever. All of these things are perishing, and you're never going to get the kind of depth if it lacks some kind of eternal component to it. All right, so that's the first problem with it. Number two is loyalty to shared beliefs is elusive. This is what I mean by this. It, whenever I've, I've studied with skeptics, I, I'm trying to collect quotes from other atheists that have written things, and I'm trying to just get a picture of what they might believe. And so I'm quoting from Charles Darwin, and I'm quoting from Richard Dawkins, and, and some people will go, well, I don't like that part of what Richard Dawkins said, or I don't like that part of what Charles Darwin said. There's no need to defend anybody in any total sense. So you get to totally choose what you like about what any of these people have said. And so there's really, can you imagine a group of people trying to come together with, with nothing that they have to bind themselves to in agreement and try to share your life with each other. Is that going to work very well? Antonia Bloomberg, she wrote an article about how skeptics have a hard time finding community. She said this, secular individuals have to build their own communities. Religions come equipped with covenantal rituals that bind people together, sacred practices that are beyond individual choice. Secular people have to choose their own communities and come up with their own practices and to make them meaningful. I'm not suggesting that Christians would never have differences about certain practices and things like this. But if you've got nowhere to even start, can you imagine how difficult that would be to try to come up with some things that everybody would see eye to eye on? So that's that's another criticism of, of this. But here's a third one. Have you thought about the ethics of our age and how people determine what's right and wrong? Is our society, the more and more you leave God out of something, do people get oftentimes more and more self-oriented? Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher, and he wrote a really big book called Our Secular Age. And notice what he said in part of this. He said, intellectual and artistic elites have been searching for the authentic way of living or expressing themselves throughout the 19th, 19th century. What is new is that this kind of self-orientation seems to have become a mass phenomenon. Often this is experienced as loss, breakup. A majority of Americans believe that uh, communities are eroding, families, neighborhoods, even the polity. They sense that people are less willing to participate, to do their bit, and they are less trusting of others. So he's saying that like, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, it was only amongst the elites that they could figure out how do I express myself? And I'm interested in individualistic expression through what all, all these things. That, that was something that only elite people could do. But now in our society, it's something that everybody is fixated on. And what is it doing to societies? Is he's saying that it's eroding things and, and all that sort of thing. So you see that that without God, without these ethics, we're going to say more about the ethics in just a moment. But if a secular age leads to ethics that are self-oriented, can you see why people are lacking in community? All right. So uh, that's some things to say about the secular approach to community. I want to shift to... Uh, uh, the biblical approach or the Christian worldview to this. You already see one of these verses up here. I want to begin this part of the lesson just with a promise that Jesus said. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left 
house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You know what the context of this passage is? In the context of this passage, the rich young ruler has come to Jesus and he walks away sorrowfully from Jesus because he was unwilling to give up the wealth that he had to follow Jesus. And Jesus had told him he would, you'd have treasure in heaven with me if you come and follow me. Uh, but he didn't see the value in making that, that trade. And so when this guy walks away, the disciples are wondering, well, who can enter the kingdom then? And Jesus uh, is trying to comfort them and assure them here that you have to give up everything. Peter, the apostles say, we've done that. And then Jesus is saying, yeah, and if you've done that, you're going to receive a hundredfold more than anything you thought you might have given up. Now, um, have you experienced this promise? Have you experienced what this is like? When I remember whenever my wife and I were moving from uh, Nashville to San Diego, we got in contact with Christians that we had never met across the country. And we stayed with, at their houses, so we didn't have to pay for the hotels or anything like that. And that was a helpful thing. But it was also cool to get to meet people that are part of the family. Uh, I went to the Czech Republic a couple of years ago, and there were brethren that I had never met before that I got to stay with when I was there. Have you ever had a time before where you were talking with a non-Christian and you were just talking about each other's life and you mentioned, oh, yeah, I got a friend here and I, oh, yeah, I got some friends over there, too. And uh, you kind of just you're just sharing your life and they look at you and they go, what are you part of that? You would have people that, you know, all over the place. Jesus promises that if you're willing to give up and walk away from your biological family, that the, if they're not Christians, that, that you're going to have so much more. Look at this community that he creates. Now, what I want to ask then is what are the resources that makes this possible? Have you ever heard uh, like lessons on one another? We got, we, we have to love one another, all this sort of thing. What makes it even possible to begin with? That we can have the community that we have in Christ. Why, what are the mechanics of that? Uh, for the rest of this lesson, I want to look at the book of Ephesians again. Look at Ephesians. I want to start with something in chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we looked at some of this context yesterday. But look at verse 10 of chapter 1. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. One of the things that Paul brings up at the beginning of this letter, that one of God's eternal purposes or eternal plans was to unite things in heaven and things on earth. It, have you ever noticed how that's one of the themes of the book of Ephesians? There's instructions on marriage, husbands and wives learning to be united. In chapter 4, there's instructions about a church being united. In chapter 2, we've been united to Christ, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, we've been united to one another. This is a theme throughout the whole book, but it doesn't just say that this happens. There's things in the book of Ephesians that show why it's possible to begin with. So what resources does Christianity have that no other worldview would have? Number one, we have unifying beliefs. Now, I know you could say that other people have unifying beliefs, but I want to say some things about this. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Start in verse 13. 
where Paul talks about uh, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's talking about attaining to this unity. Uh, earlier in the chapter, he talks about these beliefs that unify people together that we're supposed to work through and study together and learn together. Look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, there's the seven ones of this passage, seven things that Christians need to agree on that are like non-negotiable. Have you ever heard people say before that Christians are narrow-minded, that you guys are narrow-minded, we're all narrow-minded? All right, let's say that um, I want to join... Uh, like a, uh, a Ford or a Chevy, like fan group or something like that. I'm a Toyota person personally. Uh, so I joined the Toyota one and I'm part of the Toyota fan club people. And then I come the next week and I'm like, I got a Ford. Do you think it's gonna be a little awkward? <laughs> or if I say that I want to be part of this political party, but, but I'm okay with what, what they, the other side says on this particular issue. Do you think everyone's go, oh, that's fine. Not a big deal. Do you realize that any, any group that tries to have some degree of unity is gonna by nature be narrow-minded? You, you've got to have things that you agree on. Shared beliefs are necessary if you ever want to have any kind of unity in anything. So you can see how the world does those sorts of things. But do you know what we don't get to do? If, 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 we have a difference on something. None of us gets the right to say, well, that's what Paul said. That's not what Jesus said. All of us have to defend what this says. And if there's something that we don't see the eye to eye on, we can all put our eyes on what the text says and try to reason through what it actually says. But we don't get the right to say, oh, I don't like what Paul said or what Moses said there. We don't really like that. So we're going to ignore those kinds of things. That's not how this works. So that's the first thing is that Christianity has unifying beliefs that if we reject, we're going against the edicts of the king and we have to submit ourselves to those views. Number two, though, is there is shared adversity. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Have you ever noticed how whenever there's a common enemy, it brings people together? In Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Do you notice that in verse 12, the Christian life is re- is characterized as wrestling. Is Paul shifting the metaphors in this text? Because he's talking about putting on the whole armor of God. That's war imagery. But then he talks about wrestling. Is he using two different kinds of imagery here? Or is the kind of warfare he's dealing with and referring to is the kind where it's like close hand-to-hand combat? You know, like in the ancient ways where people would would fight with swords up close next to each other. It's like the warfare was not, you didn't have sniper rifles and things like this. You had to be up close wrestling with people. The Christian life here is characterized as wrestling. 
I know that Philippians describes it as peace, and somehow that coexists at the same time with this wrestling business. Do you know what that's like? You know, one of the things that's been such a blessing since being a Christian is knowing that if I'm struggling with anger or jealousy or whatever, I'm, I'm wrestling against the same things that my brethren are wrestling against. Which means that we have a common enemy that we can help each other out with. Like when Micah uh, came forward on Sunday night and confessed sin and wanted the prayers of the congregation. Can we relate to sinfulness? And can we draw near to each other when we are understand that we're all wrestling against the same kinds of things? Uh, have you ever noticed in our society that belief in Satan and belief in a demonic world is something that's laughed at? That, oh, you believe in Satan, you believe in demons and things like this. Um, I would suggest that if your worldview says that everything is reduced to physical things and psychology and sociology, you've got some problems. Did Hitler really do everything he did just because he had a bad, bad childhood? Is sex trafficking such a terrible thing because the people that are involved in that just had bad upbringings? Do we really want to reduce terrible things to just being, yeah, bad background, whatever. Psychology, whatever. Isn't the wickedness in the world some kind of an evidence that there must be some kind of spiritual realm that we're fighting against? And for the Christian, this is what we're wrestling against. And we can do this together, and this brings us together more and more. So I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and the Eagles have a common enemy, and it's the Cowboys. But that doesn't make me feel the same kind of kinship that I feel with Christians. Because the enemy is much greater than even the Cowboys. Um, Notice the third one. The sacrifice of Christ. I really don't like the Cowboys. Look at uh, (laughs) Ephesians, and they're doing a lot better this year than the Eagles are. Uh, the, the sacrifice of Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This text talks about this dividing wall of hostility that was torn down. And I think it's possible that what Paul is is imagining here is in the temple. There was the the court for the Gentiles and then there was a wall and uh, no Gentile could go past that wall. That was only for the Jews. And that in what Christ has done symbolically has torn that wall down And now brought people together that normally would never have been brought together. This is all possible because of Jesus' sacrifice. Um, Do you think any other worldview has got the sacrifice of somebody that shows us that all people were actually unified in their sin? And all people, therefore, can be unified in their forgiveness in this man? Does any other worldview have got some kind of sacrifice that binds us together in this way? Where, Where do you see... This binding happened, by the way, in Scripture. One of my favorite examples of this is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Have you ever noticed that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's the table of contents of the book of Acts? 
where he says, uh, but you will receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's Acts 1 through 7, in Judea and Samaria, that's Acts 8 through 12, and to the ends of the earth, that's Acts 13 through 28. Can you imagine for a moment being one of the apostles saying, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and you're like, yeah, that's my people. And then the second place that he says is Judea and Samaria. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. These are people that don't get along with each other. Um, Have you ever noticed before in the Old Testament, there's these prophecies of God taking the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Jeremiah 31, and he's going to make a new covenant with them. Remember in Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel, after the, the Valley of Dry Bones, he's told to take a stick, like two sticks. And I, I imagine like if this is, would be like one of them and this is the next one, he's supposed to like hold them like this or something and, to make it look like it's one stick now. I know these things are not the same, but whatever. Um, so he's supposed to hold these things together and, and show the Israelites this stick that now looks like one. What's the image of that in Ezekiel 37? That the north and the south are going to be brought back together. And can you imagine the people who heard that prophecy from Ezekiel? How will that ever happen? Remember what Jeroboam did with the golden calves? Could God ever bring these people back together? Well, when does it ever happen? When the gospel starts in Jerusalem, and then it goes to Judea and Samaria, and then it goes to the end of the earth. God's taken these people And he's brought brought them all into this new family because of the sacrifice of Christ. Have you ever been frustrated with another Christian? I personally haven't. But if you have, you realize that every brother or sister in Christ that you've been frustrated with is somebody for whom Christ died. Should that put some kind of obligation in our hearts to not divide and try to work things out with other people? There's an obligation in that. What worldview gives that kind of obligation? There's nothing else that does that. Notice the last one is that it's not just that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. We're also supposed to imitate those loving ethics that he did for us. And there's there's a bunch of stuff to say about this in Ephesians. I just want to give you one little uh, snippet of this idea. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 through chapter 5 verse 2. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Have you ever looked at how difficult those instructions are? You would need to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving. Those are all really difficult things to do. You're supposed to be loving towards one another. What gives me the strength To be that kind of person. You're forgiving as God forgave you. You have to understand that God did it for you first. That you're loving. You're sacrificial for others. Knowing that Jesus did that for you first. Is this how you would like to be treated? People to be kind towards you? Tender hearted? Forgiving? Do you suppose that you'd feel a sense of community if people did that for you? Do you realize that all of us are bound by God because of his grace and how he first did those things for us, we're bound by him to do the same things for others. Do you suppose that when you get a group of people that really believe that and are binding themselves to those ideas, do you suppose that there's going to be some kind of sense of community and belonging and love that people will experience by that? 
By the way, do Christians always live this out perfectly? No. But my argument is that Christians have the best resources to do this. Have you ever seen people before that were like multimillionaires, but they acted like they were really poor? They drove really old cars. You couldn't tell from their clothes that they were really wealthy. Can we as Christians ever be that way? Where we've got all the resources in the world to be what God has asked us to be, but we're living like we're poor. Not taking advantage of all these resources that we have from God. I want to end this lesson with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, in his book, Life Together. He says this, the basis of the community of the spirit is truth. The basis of human community is desire. The essence of the community of the spirit is light. The essence of human community is darkness. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. The community of the spirit is the fellowship of those who are called by Christ. Human community is the fellowship of devout souls. In the community of the spirit, there burns the bright love of brotherly service, agape. In human community, there grows the dark love of good and evil desire, eros. In the former, there is ordered brotherly service. In the latter, disordered desire for the for pleasure. In the former, humble subjuga- subjugation of the brethren to the brethren. In the latter, humble yet haughty subjection of a brother to one's own desire. I like that quote. That if we've signed up to follow Jesus, that this is what's expected of us. Do you think in the last couple of years that there's some Christians that have felt lonely? Have we realized that because of these things that we have in Christ, that these things are all expected of us? I was supposed to, I was going to try to get back. I don't understand how, um, what is this thing called? Keynote? I always use PowerPoint. I don't know how this stuff works. Whatever. There's this quote. I can't do the thing I wanted to do. Um... Are you part of this kind of community? The world is hungering and thirsting for this kind of thing. And as long as you run from God and don't want to serve him, there's going to be things within you that are never going to be satisfied. I don't know if there's anybody here that's subject to the invitation, but we're going to sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. If you haven't yet started to decide to follow him. Jesus will meet your deepest longings and he'll give you all the motivations in the world to do the right thing for his glory. If there's anything that we can do for you, please come forward while we stand, while we sing.